Uh, well, happy Father's Day to you. Good to be with you today. I want to do something we don't normally do here, so if you're new, I promise this doesn't happen every week. But if you're a dad, would you go ahead and stand up just for a minute uh, for me? Um, here's, a, here's the deal. I just want to say thank you for who you are and for what you do. Um, here's what I know about you, that if you're married, I know that you love your wife, even if you don't always show it. Um, I know that you love your kids, even if you feel like you let them down and aren't the father that you always want to be. And in a culture that devalues you, that plays you as dumb, as someone who doesn't know what's going on in the family, doesn't know how to lead and love their, their family well, I want you to know that I see you, that God sees you, that God loves you, and that if you're in Christ, not only does he love you, but he's actually pleased with you and who you are. And so for everyone that's sitting, can we give these men a round of applause for what they do? So thank you, you guys. You guys can have a seat. Thank you for what you do. I'm really excited today as we're looking at a topic that is absolutely relevant to all of us that are sitting here today. And so I want to begin by this question. Uh, do you feel like what you do matters? Because here's what I know. Regardless of how much money you make, what career you have, what season of life you're in, we all ask this question. Do I matter? Am I significant? Do I add any value? Does, it, does what I do matter? Does who I am matters? Um, we all have that question. Does it matter what I do or who I am? And so that's exactly what we're going to be looking at today. And so if you have a Bible or a phone with you, go ahead and open or click to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, if you don't, there's a black one around you somewhere. And if you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those black ones home. Uh, but you can open that if you'd like to read along with us. Uh, what we're going to do today is I'm going to read the first half of this all at once. Um, because Paul is speaking to a specific situation um, that's a little bit different than how we experience it today. And so you may be sitting there and be like, what does this mean for me? We'll use the second part of this passage to explain how this is actually relevant to all of us. And I'll give the caveat I gave last week in Corinthians chapter 7, 8, and 9. Paul, who is writing to the church in Corinth within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And these three chapters, he's actually addressing specific questions that the Corinthians has writ had written to Paul and asked him. And so we don't know what exactly they asked, which makes some of this a little bit difficult to understand what Paul is actually referring to. But even in that, we can still pull uh, general principles and ideas about what Paul is saying. If you were here last week, uh, Paul is continuing to answer the question that he answered last week. Last week, we talked about uh, sex and the married context and how often it should happen. It was a lot of fun for me up here. And so we're going to continue with that idea. And he's answering some sort of question about marriage. And he continues in verse 10 by saying this, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So a couple of things real quick. When he says that a command I give you, not I, but the Lord, what he's saying there is he's simply reiterating a teaching of Jesus, that Jesus taught what marriage was, that marriage is a lifelong commitment. Um, however, here, you don't, he doesn't refer to what is kind of known as the exception clause, where there are times, biblically speaking, where there are, there are grounds for divorce, infidelity, uh, abuse, and or neglect. In those cases, uh, divorce can be uh, sought and is not necessarily wrongful or sinful in the eyes of God. Now, Paul does not mention that here, again, likely, because he knows the questions that are being asked to them, and he knows that that is not a situation uh, that's going on in this example. So there's not abuse or neglect or infidelity happening, and so he doesn't address it here because that's not going on. And he continues in verse 12 by saying this, but I, not the Lord, say the rest. Now, real quick here, what he's simply about to say is he's simply saying this, that Jesus, that we do not have a direct teaching of Jesus saying what I'm about to say. However, this does not mean if you're a follower of Christ that what Paul is saying is not authoritative in our 
life. Because what, what, what we know is that scripturally speaking, we believe that the Holy Spirit in some way, somehow inspired those who wrote and compiled the scriptures together so that all of it is authoritative and speaks to our life. So just because Jesus doesn't say something, if it is in scripture, we ought to still heed and understand what he is saying. And so he's simply saying, Jesus didn't talk about this part, but because I'm addressing a specific uh, situation, here's what I want you to know. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." And so what's going on here, again, this is within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Christianity was brand new. And so there was some debate or some thought that if you become a believer, and then you're therefore married to someone who isn't a Christian, that your marriage is somehow defiled, it is somehow less than, and you shouldn't stay married. What Paul is saying is simply that is not true. If you become a believer and your spouse doesn't, it does not mean your marriage is less than, it does not mean your marriage is worse, it is bad. He's saying you need to stay faithful where you are. In our culture today, it's a little bit different because if, if a spouse becomes a believer, we don't assume that you should get married but for, or you should get divorced. But in their context, they were, they were brand new. There were significant consequences for many of them for following Jesus. So oftentimes certain spouses would not like that. And so he's simply saying this, that as best as you can, do, you need to know that your marriage is not defiled. It is not less than. And again, if there's not an abu- abuse, neglect, or infidelity or abandonment of any kind, you should continue to stay married to your spouse, even if you're a Christian and your spouse isn't continues verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, leaves, let him leave. Again, Paul is writing this church, uh, this letter to the church, so he has no authority over those who are not followers of Christ. And so he's saying, if, you have a, if your unbelieving spouse is the one that wants to leave, let them leave. Here's why. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. His point is this, that if your unbelieving spouse wants to leave you, you need to know that you're not guilty of anything, that you have done nothing wrong, that you are not being unfaithful. If you're a believer, in this context, it was a big deal, and your spouse does not like it, and your spouse says, I'm going to leave, you just need to know that you have not sinned, that you have not done anything wrong. And yet, he concludes with verse 16 by saying this. Here's what he wants us to know ultimately. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. And go. So here's what he's saying. He's saying there exactly what he think what we think he's saying. That although there's questions about what he means about your spouse and them not being holy or your kids not being unclean, where again we don't know the context he's responding to, so it's difficult to know what he means by that. But what he's saying here is simply this: you have no idea what your faithfulness may do. And so I don't know if you're in a situation like that, or maybe you've got friends that are a situation like Paul's referring to. I just want to encourage you to stay faithful where you are, to love your spouse well, because even if you feel discouraged, even if you feel like what you're doing doesn't matter, you have no idea the significance that you can make. And to give you a story of how, that, how I've seen that play out real quick, on the screen, here's a picture of a guy named Cayetano. If you're part of New City, you know we were partnered with a church in Los Chilitos, Guatemala. Uh, this man, his name is Cayetano, uh, he has an incredible story of, do, of experience what, experiencing what we just read. That Mitch and Amanda, who lead the church plant when they initially moved down to Guatemala a few years ago and started sharing the gospel in homes, uh, Cayetano hated them. He was not happy with what they were doing. He didn't want him to be there. Eventually, his wife, Vilma, uh, invites uh, uh, Mitch and Amanda to start doing a Bible study in their home. 
And eventually, he t- at first he told his wife, no, that they couldn't. Then he was like, fine, that they can. And he started to go to some of them, but eventually he was so mad that he wanted them to stop coming altogether. Now, long story short, what's so fascinating about this man is that this man, from his own admission, before he became a follower of Christ, was abusive to his wife, he was neglectful to his kids, and he would drink all the time. He was non-existent in his home. But what happened was his wife was faithful, his wife loved, served, prayed for him, which you may not know, and you may know if you're here because we've talked about it, that this man is one day going to be the pastor of the church in Los Chilitos. And if you ever have the opportunity to come with us on a future trip, to sit and hear this man's story will absolutely change your life. A man that has seen Jesus, has experienced Jesus, who, has, who knows Jesus, who has been changed by the gospel. And it started because his wife loved him, served him, was faithful even when it was hard. And so you have no idea the situation that you are in, what your faithfulness may do. Now, for the rest of us, that may be like, that's great to know, but what does it have to do with me? Here's the point. If you read verse 17, here's what Paul is really getting at. He uses marriage to set up this example, and that's this, that let each one live his wife in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. In other words, here's what we need to know this morning as we look at this text, that God has called you where you are. He's called you to where you are. In other words, where you are is not an accident. According to this verse right here, it says he's assigned you and he's called you, that he has something for you to do where you are for a reason. This does not mean that you can't have dreams and aspirations to do something else later in life, but you need to know while you are where you are that there is a reason that God has you there, that he specifically called you to where you are and to what you're doing. This is why one of the reasons, and I get why people say it that are in ministry, but why I'm personally not a big fan when people in ministry said, God called me to ministry. And they'll talk about the time where that happened. And I get what they're saying, that they're doing this because they feel like it's, you know, it's what God wants them to do and also it's what they want to do. But I'm not a fan of it for two reasons. One, it elevates those of us in ministry as if God has called us to something greater than everybody else, as if we are somehow more holy than other people, which is not true. And the second reason I'm not a big fan of it, because here's the reality. If you are a follower of Christ, you have been called. You have been called, whether you're a teacher, whether you're in sales, whether you're a mom, whatever you are, if you're a student, wherever you are, God has called you where you are for a reason. It's one of the reasons why, and again, Paul is writing this to a letter to a church with a lot of new believers, but one of my experiences is often when people become Christians, they then assume that absolutely everything in their life must change. Now, there might be certain things that do need to change, but it does not necessarily mean that you need to dump all of your friends, that you need to move across the country or across the world to become a full-time missionary. According to what Paul is saying here, it could be that while those things are not necessarily bad things, that not only has God saved you, but he saved you at a specific point in time to do what only you could do with the relationships and the impact that you have to those around you. You need to know that God has called you to where you are, so where you are matters. And not only that, you also need to know that God knows where you are. He hasn't just called you there, but he knows you're there, even if it's frustrating, even if you wish you were in another place. Let me give you an example of how this has played out for me. Um, I grew up, ministry wasn't something that I ever thought I would really do, and that changed in college, long story short, and so Christine and I, we, were, we, were, uh, we met at UNC Wilmington on the coast. We were going to move to Texas after we graduated, so I go to seminary. Long story short, the college pastor at the church that we are part of says, hey, I'm going to plant a church, and I was like, well, I think I want to do that one day, and so we stayed in Wilmington. 
Uh, and so we got a bunch of jobs. I did my master's degree online. We stayed in Wilmington so I could learn church planning so one day we would be better equipped to do it. Well, a few years into it, I started to look at jobs at, uh, at churches that were more established um, because I was like, okay, I've learned what the beginning phase looks like. I'd like to see what it looks like when there's systems in place, you know, how, how, how that all goes together. So I started applying all these places, couldn't get a job anywhere. And I was super upset about it. My, I was finishing up my uh, degree. And so it's like this point of time, like, you know, you can't only work part-time jobs forever. I had to get a job. And because no ministry jobs were working out, I just had to get a job in the marketplace. And long story short, I ended up getting a job here at Verizon here in Raleigh. And let me just tell you, I was so frustrated. I was so upset, not only because I hated the job. I mean, I love my coworkers, but I hated the job. But I was also frustrated because I was like, God, what am I doing here? Like, I trained. I feel like I put in my dues. I've worked all these part-time jobs, and now I'm working a job that has nothing to do with what I want to do. Why am I here? And looking back at it now, I see that all of the reasons that God had me there, some of which were for my own good some of which were for me to learn what it's like to have a real job. Uh, I have a, a pastor that I really look up to in California, and this is not true for everybody, but it would have been true for me because I grew up a believer and had strong Christian friends my whole life, um, that if I never had gotten a real job, I don't think I would have been able to relate and understand what people go through. Here's what I mean. He often says it this way, that oftentimes when pastors get together, they complain about how hard their jobs are. But he says the reason they complain about how hard their jobs are is because they go to college, they go to seminary, and they get a job in ministry, and they've never actually had a real job. So, of course, it's hard to them because they don't know anything different, right? And so being somewhere that I did not want it to be taught me things and allowed me to experience things I would not have been able to experience otherwise, that God had a specific reason for me to be where I was, even if I didn't see it and didn't want to be there in the moment. Paul's point is simply here, that God knows where you are. He's called you to where you are for a reason. He's going to give an example of what he means by this. In verse 18, here's one way that it would have played out for the Corinthians. He says, was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. What is Paul talking about here? So the Jewish people, if you were a young boy, baby boy, you would be circumcised as a, as a sign that you were part of God's covenant chosen people. Well, with Jesus coming, what we now see is your ethnicity and who you are and what you do does not change your standing before God. What matters is whether or not you are a follower of Jesus. And you don't want to know the details, but there are ways that you could hide your circumcision. So like at bathhouses and, and public places like that, men would do things to kind of hide the fact that they were circumcised because some of them were embarrassed by it. Or the Gentiles, those that were not Jews, that became Christians and were studying the Bible and were learning it as it being taught, would assume, well, then I have to get circumcised because that's what the Jewish believers did. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 you don't, because what you do is not what you, what's important. It's who you follow. It's not to say that our ethnicities and our cultures don't matter, but they are irrelevant when it comes to our standing before God. That They do not save us. What matters is that we are simply being faithful where God has put us. And so his point here is this, whether it's in a marriage with an unbeliever or otherwise in a workplace or a season of life, what does it look like for you to be faithful? In other words, here is why you and I need to know that God has called us specifically to where we are. Because being faithful where you are matters. Being faithful where you are matters. And let me give you, play it out this way. I think you can probably relate to this. It is my experience that we often feel guilty about where we are in life, not because of God's expectations, because of our own. Like, so for example, a few years ago, I was at my friend's, uh, he was turning 30, and we were, I was standing near him, and at one point, it was at a party at his house, 
and he has like this big somber look come over his face, and he said, you know, like, aren't you excited? You're 30, all this stuff. He said, um, I thought I would have been farther along in life than I was by now. So at this point, his, him and his wife had not had any kids. Um, he was working a job that he never really wanted to have and just had to get it for various reasons and was not a follower of Christ. And so according to him, like, this is all that there was for him. And he was very somber on what should be his birthday. Why? Because he's disappointed. He felt like he had fallen short. And you just need to know, no matter where you are, no matter what season of life you are in, that God does not look at people who are more significant, who have accomplished more, and say, I'm so glad that, that, that what you've done and where you are. What he looks at is our faithfulness. And it could be that God has allowed certain things to happen to you that has caused you to be in the place that you are exactly because he has people that you want to impact, that he wants you to impact, and he wants you to reach that could not have been reached if it wasn't for you being faithful where you are. Put this in another term that God isn't asking you to be God. He's asking you to be you. He is asking you to be the person that he has created you to be in the place that he has placed you to be. Let me give you an example of this because here's what often happens. Often happens we get discouraged because we feel like we can't change the world. And what Paul, God is saying is, no, you can't because you're not me. You can't do everything that you want me to do, that, that I can do. But I'm not asking you to do it. I have you where you are. I've given you the giftings that I've given you. I've placed the people around you that I've placed around you because I want you to do something that nobody else can do. So for me, going back to Verizon, one of the reasons I got discouraged as I was there is because although I got to talk uh, to my coworkers about faith all the time, in fact, some of them called me preacher because they knew I wanted to be in ministry one day, a lot of great faith conversations. One day, I got really discouraged. And I was discouraged for a while because I was looking at these guys and I'm thinking, man, the, most of these guys, they're never walking through the doors of a church, ever. And in fact, the two years that I was there, I, we had faith conversations all the time and invited many of them many times, and only one person, one time, came with me to church. And so one morning, I think I was reading my Bible, and I was, again, I was really discouraged about this because I was like, man, I want to be in ministry one day, and they're never going to go to church, and so like, they're never going to hear Jesus, all these sorts of things. I get, started to get discouraged about the fact that, what, what about these people? And it was as if God said to me, Dylan, why do you think I have you there? I have you there to do something that only you could do, that I have placed believers in workplaces and seasons of life and families to do things that nobody else can do. And what happens is when we get so frustrated where we are, we want things to change so bad, we realize we miss out that, no, God, you are significant to God, and he might just have something absolutely incredible for you to do that you will not do and will not see if you're just trying to get out of a situation or if you're mad that life has not played out the way that you wish that it had. And so to make this as practical as I can, here's one way that we can actually make this practical. Instead of focusing on changing the world, here's what I want us to do. That you and I should do for one what we wish we could do for many. This is what it looks like to you, and I've heard this is not unique with me. I've heard a lot of people say this, that you and I should do for one what we wish you could do for many. Because what happens often, in my experience, what paralyzes us from doing good things, from loving people, from sharing Jesus with other people, is we look out in the world and we think, I can't, I can't uh, cure cancer. I can't stop world hunger. I can't give clean water to everybody in the world that doesn't have it. And so because we feel like we can't change the world... It stops us from even doing anything. And could it not be that God isn't asking you to change the world? Could it be he's asking you to be faithful where you are? And the biggest, most practical way you can be faithful where you are is to look around at your coworkers, uh, students if you're in college, the moms in your mom group, wherever you are, and say, why does God have me here? And how can I be faithful to that one person 
that, it, that nobody else is seeing, that nobody else is loving, that nobody else is encouraging, that no one else is being Jesus to them, that if you do for one what you wish you could do for many, and us as a church, if we would do that, that is where we see significant change happens. When the church comes together to do what God has called us to do, you cannot do this by yourself, but you can make a difference in one person's life if you're willing to be faithful and look around and say, why does God have me here, and what might he be asking me to do? That's Paul's point. Be faithful where you are. And so he continues and says this in verse 21. He says, where uh, were you uh, called, where were you, what did he say? Here's what he says. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. In other words, this, if you're a slave or if you're free, you need to know that that does not define you. Yes, if you're able to get out of slavery, you should pursue that route, but you need to know that that does not define you. Following me where you are, even if it's difficult, is what matters. Verse 22, for he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. He's simply saying this, that there is freedom in Christ, but at the, same t- at the same moment, God owns everything, and so we are under Christ. Verse 23, you were bought at a price, a.k.a. you are valuable and loved by God. So do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. Paul's point here is simply this. Don't be enslaved to things of this world. God owns it all, so be faithful where you are until he calls you somewhere else. And so here is why I think the most practical thing we can do is to do for one person what we wish we could do for many. Here's why. Because you can't do everything But you can do something. It is not true that you cannot make an impact in people's lives around you. It does not matter your education level. It does not matter your gender. It does not matter how much money you have. That God, that only you have the relationships with the people around you that you have. And so if someone else were to come in and try to do what what God has called you to do, they simply couldn't do it. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And that is all that God is asking you to do. And I'm going to give you an example of this. I want to read, it's a little bit of a long letter, but I think it's worth reading. Uh, It's this true story of a guy by the name of Greg Simmons and this woman named Miss Wheeland. And I want to show you how one, being just simply being faithful where we are can actually change the world for people. And the story goes like this. Greg Simmons was a highly successful businessman. Again, this is a true story. And his goal in life was to make a lot of money so that he could retire early, be very generous, go on missions trips, and just love people and and be Jesus to people. So he wanted to make a lot of money so he could quit his job and focus on that. And so eventually he bought some uh, farmland in North Carolina. uh, And he also had five uh, five children. So his oldest was 12. His youngest was an infant. So him and his wife had a lot of stuff going on. It's a crazy house right there. I have two, and I don't even know what that what I'm doing. And so one day, uh, his oldest son, his 12-year-old son, asked if they could go on a hike to a waterfall near, nearby their farm. And so Greg, his three oldest kids, and one of Greg's friends comes with them, and they go on this hike. Um, as they got close to uh, the waterfall, the, rain, the terrain looked a little kind of iffy, kind of little maybe unsafe. And so Greg told his kids and his friend to hold up, let him go first to make sure that everything was fine. Um, eventually, what happened as he was walking, the soil gave way, and he fell down into the waterfall and died. So he, he dies, true story, in front of his kids, in front of his friends. Um, and a few weeks later, his uh, 12-year-old son uh, wrote a letter to Miss Wheeland, who was a family friend from when they lived in Atlanta. And here's what he said. It's a little long, but I'm going to read the whole thing. He says, Dear Miss Wheeland, you don't know how much your family help, uh, helped form my father and who he was. 
He admired your husband and you a lot. He would talk about how good your faith was with God. He tried to be as generous as you all are to the church and to many other good things. Since his death, his true friends have been revealed. Your family was at the top of the list. You are a great source of energy for my mother and I. My father loved you very much and was always trying to be like you. My father was like one of the three men in the Bible who were given talents by Jesus. Two went out and invested them and multiplied them, uh, but one returned within a few days and uh, had hidden the amount and had done nothing with what God had given them. So the Lord was disappointed with him because he didn't try. My father multiplied and lost and gained many things, but he was always trying to please the Lord. He got a lot, Miss Whelan, from you and your family. My dad was a risk taker. Uh, that's, that's just the way that he was. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God, and that was what mattered to my dad. One will, uh, one, no one will understand why or how my father fell into the waterfall. Do yourselves a favor and do not try to figure it out, please. My dad died for his children. He was making sure it was safe for us to come up. You may hear things, but only six people saw it, and only three people understood what really happened. Miss Whelan, I am one of those. My mom lost her treasure chest, her husband. Most others lost Greg. You lost a best friend. My grandparents lost their son. John and Barbara lost their brother. But Miss Whelan, it is different for me, totally different for me. He was my best friend, my model, my idol. When I got my last glimpse of him falling down the waterfall, I lost my most prized man on earth. He was my father, my one and only dad. I had a dream three nights ago, but it wasn't a dream. My father is all right. He told me himself. Thank you, Miss Whelan, for being a true friend. I love you a lot. So why do I share that story? That if you met Miss Whelan, you would probably think nothing extraordinary about her. Uh, but she was simply faithful where she was and made it a tremendous eternal difference in this boy's life. You see, she wasn't well off. She wasn't successful. She didn't start a world-changing nonprofit. She wasn't missionary in a foreign land. She was simply being faithful where God had her. She was a normal person living a normal life, being faithful where she was. If you ask me, she was doing for one person and one family what she probably wished she could do for everyone, but she knows that she was not God. She was simply being faithful where she was. This is why here at New City, we started, we've talked about it a few times this year, and I honestly should be talking about it more, but earlier this year, we started our Just One campaign, and our desire is to invest and be faithful to just one person. If you're a follower of Jesus and you call New City home, being faithful and investing in one person and hopefully inviting that person, because our desire and our goal is to be a church that is actively engaging people with 250 people with the gospel every Sunday. Now, let me say this with as much character and integrity as I have. I do not care about the size of New City Church. We could have 50 people. We could have 5,000 people. I do not care about the numbers so we could say, hey, look what, how many people we have. I do not care. But what I care about is helping people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. And I want us, I want you, I want our church family to play our small part in helping people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him in our community. So let me just remind you, if you're a follower of Jesus, who is your one person? Who are you being intentional with? Who are you inviting? Who are you loving? Who are you encouraging? Who's the person at work that maybe no one else likes, but you can actually invite them to lunch? You can actually talk to them, or you can actually ask them how you can be praying for them, and then actually do it. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And so let's be a church that is faithful, not for numbers sake, but because Jesus is what ultimately matters. And because of that, here's really the bottom line from this text this morning, what I want us to walk away knowing. That only you can do what God wants you to do. 
Only you can do it. We may think, well, I didn't go to seminary, and I don't have all this money, and I don't have all this influence. Guess what? You may not, but only you know the people in your life the way that you know them. You could insert someone else in there, and they will not be able to have the impact that you have, not just because you have the relationship with them, but God has called you. Like God has literally asked you and called you to do something because you matter and you are significant. And so we do this not to make God love us more, uh, not so that God would be pleased with us, but because if we've actually experienced the life-changing message of the gospel, of grace, then we want as many people as possible to experience that. So again, when we say only you can do what God wants you to do, the question is not whether or not God has called you. The question is whether you recognize it. Because he has. If you are a follower of Christ, you are significant, you matter, and even if only one person in your entire life meets Jesus because of you, that matters. Like every single person matters. Every single person matters. You matter. The people that you are impacting matter. So what are you going to do about it? And remember, we do all of this in response to the gospel, which is what? That Jesus came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. that he gave his life. He was lived the perfect life that we could not live, and so that anybody who trust and follow him, receive the grace and mercy and love of God, not because we deserve it, because he lavishly gives it to us for free. That's why it is called grace. And so we live out our lives with significance and meaning and help other people meet Jesus. Again, not so God will pat us on the back or God will love us more because there is nothing you could do to change how God views you. We simply do it because we want as many people as possible to experience the goodness of what God has done in our life. And we want people to know that they matter, that they are significant, that God has them where he has them for a reason to make an impact that only they can make. And so remember this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, only you can do what God wants you to do. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you just need to know that God loves you, God cares for you, and that you ultimately have a decision to make. Do you want to keep living your life for yourself, or do you actually want to follow the one who came to give his life for you because you matter, not because of what you do, because of what he did? And God has you and has me where he has us for a reason, because only you can do what God wants you to do. You matter, you are significant, you are worth it, you are important. So let's get to work on being faithful where God has us and see what God might allow us to do in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, not when we try to change the world, but we try to impact and love just one person. If we do that together, I think we'll see a big difference in what God might do in our communities and even in our church. Remember, only you can do what God wants you to do, and God has something for you to do. You are significant and you matter. Let's pray.